Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks so much for pressing play on episode 16 of LSQ, and I'm excited that this is the first part of a two-episode special with one of my favorite artists of all time, and a dear friend of mine as well, singer-songwriter Connor Oberst, who over the years has released some of my favorite albums of the past couple decades, whether with Bright Eyes or Desaparecidos, or under his own name in more recent years. Connor is about to be on the road with the Mystic Valley Band, an amazing backing ensemble with whom he released a couple of albums a decade ago, so check ConnorOberst.com for info on those upcoming dates. It's funny, though, because you'll hear near the end of this first part of the interview, Connor talks about how he was going to take all of 2018 off from both the road and the studio, so that has not turned out to be the case. We recorded this um, earlier this year, I think it was probably in March, uh, out in Los Angeles, and Connor and I have done a lot of interviews over the years, but we're also true pals, so it was nice to get together in an environment where we could have a conversation more like the ones we have when we're off the clock. Hope you'll listen to this entire episode and then make sure you're back here again next week for part two of it. We actually only get up until like the early days of Bright Eyes in this first part, so still plenty more to explore. Let's listen right now on LSQ. I'm really going to try to be normal. <laughs> you can be normal. And don't feel like you need to be right up on the microphone. It's cool okay. as well. Yeah, just feel this uh... Lounge. Thank you for doing the podcast. Yeah. Thing. I appreciate it. What do you remember as being your earliest moments of feeling music hit you in a way that was something special? Gosh, I mean... Like, what was the like, first stuff you remember listening to repeatedly on purpose? Like, finding a way that you could, whether it was by uh, buying it or taping it off the radio or... Um, I would say, like, The Cure, R.E.M., all the stuff my oldest brother, Maddie, listened to. Like, I have two old, two older brothers, and my oldest brother's like, six years older than me, and... He lived in the attic, and I remember, like, my other brother, Justin, and I would, like, kind of, like, when he wasn't around, we'd, like, sneak up and get into his, like, tapes, basically, and, like, you know, we just, we worshipped him and thought he was so cool, and, like, you know, it was, like, old enough that, like, his friends were, like, you know, they were already kind of starting to play music, and, you know, I guess when they were, like, junior high and, like, early high school... You know, it was the 80s, and it was, like, 120 minutes, like, ruled on, like, Sunday night. And that's what they were into. Totally. Yeah. And so, like, they would have, like, he would have his friends over, and I remember, like, they would watch 
would watch it like in the living room downstairs they were like allowed to like obviously like stay up later than we were <laughs> right and i remember like because it came on pretty late yeah I feel it like, came on at midnight yeah. i would i would tape it on the vcr right and so i think in nebraska it came on at like 10 right. which was still pretty late if you're like you know a fourth grader <laughs> um but i do remember like trying to like sneak in like watch as much as we could and becoming aware of you know for growing up in nebraska and being sort of i don't know even where they were drawing a lot of their inspiration from like him and his friends but they were you know i would i'd consider them like pretty hip for and, you know, and this is, like, Tim Kasher and McGinn. I mean, those were his friends, you know. So right. it was, like, that crew who turned into, like, Saddle Creek Records. But, like, that, they were all kind of in the same grade. Right. And I was a lot younger than them. But, yeah, I guess they were. So, yeah, so this is, like, 1988, 89. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And so, the, yeah, are they, they were probably reading, like, I don't know, what were you reading at the time? Maximum like, Rock and Roll, yeah. maybe, or something yeah. like that. And yeah. we did have this one really cool record store called Anacorium in town. That I eventually started frequenting and also became like a formative place of discovering music. But um, yeah, I think that that was at least my first indication of like, you know, there's music that's not the music that's on the radio or not the music that my parents listen to. And I really did like um, what we were talking a little earlier today about, you know, like Jackson Brown and, you know whatever, Paul Simon, Joni, like the stuff right. that my parents listened to, which I do have like fond memories of, but that was definitely like, it's like it was on the radio or yeah. on the stereo, like Tom Petty. And, you know, my parents actually did have like good, you know, good taste for what you could be into, you know? Right. right. Um, but I, but I do think there was like, that was kind of like the first wave. And then the second wave I would say would be like Maddie and all his friends and kind of that like, yeah, like replacements and REM and all that yeah. sort of stuff that felt like sort of special and weird and like the kids at school didn't know about it right. and whatever. And like, so that was like phase two. And right. then when I got to be, I don't know, I guess like in junior high or whatever and, you know, kind of like, and I can go to the record store by myself and start buying. I actually remember we used to go... There's a couple summers, like probably sixth, seventh grade, where we, like me and my cousin Ian and my brother Justin, like we would go to this pool every day, like all summer. Like we just like we'd go there like when it opened, and we'd stay till like they made us go home, basically. And I remember, and I would like, you know, this is probably when I'm like, I don't know, eleven or something, right? right. And I'm like, I remember like I had this like because I would want to wear like band T-shirts, but they were all way too like giant for me. <laughs> So I'd be, I was Welcome. like, you know, I, was, I remember like wearing this like giant like Smith shirt, like walking around with like my like Laffy Taffies at the, at the pool, you know, just like thinking oh I was God, really cool. That's so cute though. And then, and there was this totally, completely randomly, not, I didn't know this guy from any other part of life or wasn't friends with anyone, but he was a lifeguard there. And he came up to, I think me and Justin both had like some weird giant band shirts on and he's like cool man you guys like you like music you know and he's like he's like oh you should listen to uh pavement and it was like the first time i like ever heard like that it was a band right and and he's like yeah like and this was like i mean this is literally like when slanty enchanted right came out, like 90, 92 yeah. yeah 
and we're like, okay, cool. And I'm that was also another one of the first ones I remember, like, even separate from my oldest brother, that like the next time we got a chance to go to the record store, like, gotta get that thing that that guy was talking about, <laughs> right? I mean, like, got it, and like, like we're like into it, you know? So definitely, like, very like. I don't know if, if, if being into like indie rock or punk rock or whatever is like a blessing. We were like very blessed. We got like tipped Pointed off in the right direction really yeah. early, which like when I think back, I'm like, Oh yeah, of course that's why my life went the way it did. Cause I got, I had not, these like weird in the sky, Dave sink that owned the record store who turned me on to like a lot of older, you know, he's like first person that, listen to Towns Van Zandt or like you know like and record. you were still a kid then. I was I wouldn't by that time I was like in high school right but still it was like you know I was like 15 yeah you know and like hipping me to like stuff that was pretty off the radar as far as like definitely nothing you would have ever heard in Omaha like we hadn't we didn't have any kind of cool radio station or right there was I mean, were you just at that point like a sponge for all of it or I mean did you was you know you pick up the pavement record and you go home obviously mm. it's pavement it's awesome yeah. but i mean re- was it just the intrigue of knowing what it was that was like at that point kind of or do you feel like you already were starting to have taste in what kinds of things you liked no definitely i felt like i had i mean not that i was like you know whatever discerning is a sort of just a weird word anyway cuz it's like just people's taste but like I was attracted to things that had like melody and hooks and like words I liked. Cause I mean, at the same time that, you know, I, I probably heard like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example. I probably heard like super chunk and like the Jesus lizard around the same time. Right. And I was like, I like super chunk. Right. I don't like the Jesus lizard. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Or like, even like the really like atonal, like, sonic stuff that like my brother maddie really loved like the weird like kind of noisy right and i couldn't i just had to i don't know it was like really blended i mean i remember like one of the first shows i ever saw that really like impacted me in a live setting was they took me to uh fugazi in 91 at peeny park in omaha wow and uh I was just like, whoa. Like, my little brain was blown wide open. Yeah. Because it was so loud and, like, so aggressive, but also, like, you could sing everywhere, you know, and yeah. be like, you know. Be like, and well, it's just, there's an intent, there is just, you know, you watch old footage of Fugazi, uh, and you can see the intensity, uh, the intellectual intensity of it is just, like, palpable yeah, somehow. Totally. Like, of course, I was, like, a little kid. I wasn't, like politically aware enough right. to know a lot about like what they were singing about right but it felt important if yeah totally yeah. and like there was it was like you know kind of distilled that was i mean i think that's still what's so genius about that band is they you know in in this you know obviously like in a similar way to like a clash or something where like you're able to distill this maybe complex more political idea or social criticism idea, but into this like pop song that is understandable that you want to sing along to. Yeah. Even before you know what you're like singing along to. Right. You know, and that's like the beautiful like subversion of like pop punk or like you know things yeah. that are just like catchy in that in that way because they you know you're already hooked on 
the sound and then and then you're like find yourself singing why can't i walk down the street right. so w- w- i mean did you and justin would you did matt know you were into his music would you ask him to like tell you more or or for for tips or did it feel sort of like you had to kind of you guys had to do your own research i mean you know he was he was a very sweet older brother to us always but um you know, in the way any probably older brother is to like, they're like, yeah, yeah, like, okay, I'll let you tag, I'll let you tag along this time. But it was, you definitely like in the sort of, you know, position of like, I'd like to know more, but I don't want to right like come off as like not cool or, you know, like be like, you know, like trying not to be like a tag along, like little brat. Right. But definitely like, wanting like thinking what all that stuff that was going on with like him and his friends were cool and then of course you know they started bands in high school so then going to their shows at a really young age you know like him and tim casher and matt mcgann from cursive they they were in a band when they were like freshmen in high school like with my brother and so like going to see their band and like thinking that was the coolest thing ever and where would they play in Omaha? I mean, they would play like you know high school right. dances and VFW parties, v- yeah, VFW halls, and like I mean, there was a place called the Ranch Bowl, which was like a bowling alley spot that had shows. And there, but was, you'd go to these shows. Yeah. You were on the younger side of things going, and were you you get there and there's where's there a whole scene? I mean, were there? Did you just sort of find that you could plug into like okay, I don't need to ask. Matt, all the tips. There's kids yeah. I can. There are kids out there who are into this shit too in Omaha. Totally, like we kind of grew into it. Like me and Justin, like where we would, you know, we are definitely the young kids at first. But then, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was like fully going to shows all the time, you know, and playing. And I started a band and started right. making like my cassette tape records, and I got obsessed with this dude Simon Joyner, who's a songwriter. Yeah. And that was a cool thing in Omaha, too, because the the art community in general and the music community and definitely, like, the sort of, like, DIY music community was so small that there wasn't a separation between, like, okay, the hardcore punk bands play here and the kind of, like, you know, I mean, this is before there was even really, like, I don't even think, like, indie was a thing yet, but it was, like, and then there was, like, singer-songwriter stuff. Right. But in our town, like, the singer-songwriter stuff was, like, pretty like it wasn't like coffee shop you know like if you listen to like early like joiner records or like this guy bill hoover or it was really cool for what it was i mean they were in more of the like 90s tape label culture of you know they were friends with like vic chestnut would come right. and like play our friend alex like mcmanus who played around at the same time ended up like being in vic's band for years and um you know like those like early smog stuff and right. like early Beck stuff and like, you know, like early like mountain goats and like right. shrimper and like that label and like all that stuff was like somehow like present in our weird like Omaha, Nebraska town. I think mostly because of the antiquarian and the record store and Simon was already, people were already like getting, you know, famously like John Peel, you know, the famous DJ in England like played like an entire Simon joined a record, like, start to finish on his show. Oh, wow. In, like, 93 or 4 or whatever. Damn. You know, like, he was getting, like, weird. And, like, you know, Beck was in, like, Rolling Stone being, like, I love Simon Joyner. You know, like, right. the, he was 
he was his own kind of thing that was happening. And so we kind of loved that, which was, you know, those early Joyner eventually had a lot of different, he's made a lot of records, but the early stuff was just, you know, acoustic guitar, vocal, four track, true, like tape label, lo-fi world. Yeah. And that's like when I, my first records, I was trying to emulate that, you know I mean? That was what I was That's the goal. Yeah. But when, in terms of just like learning music, learning to play music, had you even before that, like, did your parents have music lessons as a thing that, that was uh, one of the kind of activities that was recommended? So my dad also was always a musician. And oh, he, okay. Yeah. And so my earliest, my first time I was ever on stage was with, my dad had a band called the Manville Band, which was just a cover, cover band. Okay. They play like, you know, they play like all the weddings and... And they did um, like seventies tunes or something. They would do like, you know, they would do the classic sixties, seventies like wedding, you know, <laughs> catalog. But then they would also like this is like in the eighties, and so they would learn like you know then you know the new like Hall and Oates song. <laughs> and my dad was like, you know, he was he worked at Mutual of Omaha. He was just like a just you know a very like we are like super just middle class normal regular you know, day job like, dad yeah fully yeah and so like literally like the band was like i mean it was fun obviously he liked to play music but it was also like how he made extra money on the weekends right you know? and so they just kind of did whatever and wait what did yeah. your dad play he so he was kind of like the utility guy so he played every I mean, he played right. guitar and keyboards and saxophone and sang harmonies and damn like yeah he did just yeah just kind of did all like whatever and so did he play music around the house like would he all would he play music around the house just because he liked playing instruments or yeah we i mean there was always you know we were we were lucky in that sense because you know the first records i made he had this like tiak like quarter inch four track which now i'm like oh that was such a beautiful thing at the time it was like kind of dumpy but it was like you know this sweet four track machine and he had like a little pa so when by the time my my brother started playing with his friends, a lot of stuff would happen at our house because my dad had like and he, he had, had like, a guitar had like an amp and guitar guitar right yeah totally yeah and like yeah I remember trying to play like as a, when I was like first started playing guitar I was like ten like you know he had a this beautiful like nineteen seventy like Martin like dreadnought which is like a big bodied guitar that like I think got like when he graduated high school or something but like I remember trying to get my hand over the top of it to play the strings and it was like I couldn't even like reach it you know it was like (laughs) but yeah they he he was cool I mean he I never like had lessons or anything like that but like yeah my dad and Maddie just taught me like chords and I and then I kind of started like hanging out with other friends that like and like my first band when I was like 14 like Tim Kasher from Cursor was in the band with me. He was obviously a lot older than me, so he taught me how to, like... I mean, literally, I remember him, like, explaining to me, like, this is what a distortion pedal does, you know? (laughs) Step on it now, like, when the chorus comes. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's how they get that to sound that way, like, on record. It lives lives up to its name. Yeah, and it's just like... So, yeah, always... I was always... And meeting Simon and starting to play like my first show like little shows i don't know i was very much you know 
for better or worse, I was very much always like encouraged the whole time, you know, where people were like, it's great, keep doing it, you know, which I think is like why I made so much music so fast because I didn't feel, you know, it just felt like that's what I should be doing. That's what all these, even though most of them are a lot older than me, it's like, that's what my friends do. So we, yeah, we make records, quote unquote, right. you know, tapes or whatever. And that were, was this at that point Commander Venus yet or? Yeah. So my very first stuff was like under my own name, like just like cassette tape records, but like pretty much within a year or two of, that first thing, uh, my first record, quote unquote, then Tim and I and this dr- Tim basically offered to be, you know, I like expressed wanting to like play my music louder in a band form. And he's like, I'll play bass for you. And so it was like me and him and this drummer, Matt Bowen, and then eventually Sky Rob Nanzel still runs Sadaki Records. And we were just like know what we were we you know we yeah we wanted to sound like super junk and pavement and the pixies and all of like our heroes but we ended up making like a couple records and like signing to a label in new york and like you know the first time i like left omaha to go on tour i was like 15 like in the summer damn and then the next year like we went to new york and like made a record when i was like 16 and you know, we were doing like South by and like CMJ and I mean the label. I mean, they didn't give us a bunch of money, but the label like gave us money to like make a record, which is pretty crazy. Like they were called Grass Records at first, and they did like Brainiac and like The Wrens and Sunbrain and Mouse. Oh, they put out a lot of cool records. And right when we signed to them, which is another funny story, which is this woman Camille who was signing me. This is like. We had made a record our, uh, ourselves, and then we sent it out to, like, you know, our favorite labels, which was, like, Grass was one of them, because this band Mousetrap from Omaha had been on Grass, but, like, it was also we sent it to, like, Sub Pop. And so we sent it to them, and, she, I mean, she I, it was actually after it was, I remember it was right after um, Valentine's Day. And we had self-released, like we had pressed up like, I don't know, like 300 CDs and like sold them locally. And then we're like, we should send them to the labels, you know, like that we like. So me and Tim went to like, uh, whatever, like CVS or like the equivalent right. and bought all the heart-shaped boxes we could buy because they were really cheap right after Valentine's Day okay. with the candy. And then we put our CD in it. Which, having a CD at that time was, like, a big deal to us. Right. I was, like, just, CDs were still kind of expensive to me. And, like, we wrote, like, love letters to, like, our, like, the labels we liked. Like, dear Sub Pop. Probably sent, like, I don't know, 20 packages out. This is, like, you know, going to the post office, filling out the address. Yeah, old school. Who knows? And this woman, Camille, at Grass, like, she opened it, listened to it, liked it was convinced that I was a woman because my voice hadn't changed yet and I had this crazy high, like, screaming voice. Called my, like, landline at my parents' house, like, rang one day. And, you know, when I, when my brothers answered and was like, oh, here, and I'm like, hello? And she's like, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, you know, my jaw hits the floor. Oh, my God. And, and she's like... 
asking me and then like i don't know as our conversation unravels she realizes that that you're a boy i'm a like a 14 year old boy (laughs) (laughs) not like a 20 year old girl (laughs) and is and that i remember she like screamed she's like what you know she's like this super new york lady she's like and she got even more excited she's like how old are you and like because I don't, you couldn't tell from our yeah. artwork. Or we yeah. we didn't send like pictures of ourselves or anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and they signed us. Wow. Yeah. And then it got weird, though, right? Because that label turned into Wind Up, right? Yeah, which put out Creed famously, exactly. And, like, uh, and what's that other one? Evanescence, Evanescence and stuff and... like that. But I remember you telling me too about how like the guy who took it over who. Who, yeah. who loved you and yeah. and but I remember was, you telling me how he played you like early Creed shit or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this guy Alan Meltzer and his wife bought Grass, which at the time had tons of bands and a lot of great bands. Like, I mean, I still I actually heard they're making a documentary about him, but like this band Brainiac, which is still like one of the most amazing bands. Oh yeah, the singer Timmy Taylor died young, so that's why people don't know about it, but. It's, so great. They were on grass and Toadies like said, were on grass yeah. at the beginning. Totally. And, David yeah. Dondero's first band, Sunbrain. Um tons of great bands yeah, that we thought. The Wrens were yeah. still of course, and they yeah. still are a band. But he bought it all and essentially like dropped all the bands, like kind of right after we signed with them and kind of like cleaned house and I don't know what their vision. He had come from like a way different, like more like major labely world. But yeah, he took a real shine to me, which took me a long time to figure out why. But, um, and he was always, despite his musical endeavors, he was, and I think he was pretty cutthroat business-wise, but he was always very cool to me. Um, he's, he's good. I'm speaking in past tense because he's gone now. He's passed away now, yeah. Yeah, but he, um... Later on, I found out that he had had a son, him and his wife had a son that had died in like a car accident that was like similar age to when I was at the time, which was like 16, 17. Right. And he kind of like weirdly like just let us do whatever we wanted and like bought us a van and like bought us amps and like no one bought Is that why you recorded in New York? Yeah. Right. So we went to this place, Water Music, like in New Jersey and I mean, they must have spent like kind of. I mean, a good chunk of change. I mean, at that point, yeah. obviously, you were a kid. You were coming from having a just sort of the the big indie stuff at the time that had reached you was like your only kind of blueprint for what a band might really become realistically or whatever. But, you know, as a teenager in New York making a, a more expensive than necessary record, potentially, like, did you already have any idea, like, okay, I'm... I'm maybe I'll make music as my livelihood or something, or did it just seem like a, a thing to do until you had to go back to school? I was, I was always, it was always my main focus and like our group of friends. Cause at the time, even as we had the band and we're on that label, we were also self-releasing stuff of our friends, which turned like basically became Saddle Creek records. And everyone was kind of, you know, there was a minute where like Curse was on a different label and this band, Lullaby for the Working Class, which was Mike Mogus's first band, who Mike is in Bright Eyes with me, but they they were signed to this label Bar None, and we're like doing so like there was a minute where we all were like trying to make our own way on different labels, but we would always like release our own 
seven inches or right you know like our other friend like we were building the label simultaneously as all this was happening right so by the time you know come like late 90s like 2000 you know or i mean 98 99 2000 that's when like our other i mean none of us had really very good record deals on the outside so by that point we all realized like oh let's just come back and do this ourselves right which was like what we maybe the whole time knew we probably should do but we it didn't seem really possible at the when we started it just seemed like but by then we had learned enough right we had seen record contracts and we had been on tours and we knew we kind of started to like our bullshit meter got like like better yeah and we're like or we could just put our own music out because most people you meet in this business are fucking jokesters so (laughs) like that's yeah just do it you know um and so that was really like the birth of like saddle creek so by the time i started making like the bright eyes records and like those early cursive records and like the faint the shit that really sold a lot of records and enabled us to all kind of have our careers for you know till this day really was i don't know i feel like we were kind of like learning and like in the minor leagues but like it was very like i don't know serendipitous that like we could right when we probably weren't our music was ready to be like well enough yeah. produced and accessible we had enough like business like acumen to like get do it out it. yeah to just to get it right to yeah. not fuck up the like getting it to all the people who want it at the moment when they want it thing totally and then so when coming back from the commander venus experience and in addition to deciding like well maybe what we've learned is that we should just put out our own records but did you also in starting bright eyes as the new project have like you know sort of music musical things that you knew right from the get-go were were the things you wanted to do differently um as a break you know splintering off from commander venus like no this project will be a vehicle for something else it was also simultaneous to like while commander venus was happening i kept making basically like lo-fi four track home recordings of like you know my like acoustic songs right that weren't i didn't think were like rocking enough for like my band so like they're a little more like sincere and whatever you know so i so i was kind of amassing just you know these like tapes of other songs that i didn't use for the band and yeah i guess it was right around the time that when we really decided to be like, okay, now Saddle Creek's a real label and we're going to start doing stuff and we're going to, I don't know, we got like more organized and it was actually like Rob and uh, Ted Stevens is in cursive and was the main songwriter in Lullaby for the One Class, but they, they were both like, I had been giving them my tapes for like years and they were like, this is like really good. Like, let's do, let's put this out. Like, and I was like, I don't think it's good, but you guys okay and so they like took all my stuff and like compiled they put like of like i don't know the 70 songs i'd sent them they put like 20 together mm-hmm. like, we're gonna press the cd so that was the first bright eyes record collection of songs right um and that was kind of like i at the time i didn't even it was like such a side project thing to me because i was like still focused on the band but they put it out and it was like okay cool and then 
stuff got weird with grass and right. Alan. And much to finish my Alan Melford story, just to give yeah. credit where credit is due, we were like, our band was breaking up. Like, Tim left to do cursive. And yeah, I called him up and was like, and they must have signed me for, I don't even know how many records. I'm sure we signed like the worst record like deal. Six records yeah. or something. Yeah. And I was just like, Alan, like, man, it's like, I'm just not into this. Like, we got our own label and just want to do my own thing, man. Like, and he fully just like let me out of my, like the contract, like completely. Oh, wow. Like, which I think it was like completely not his personality at all. But like I said, he had wow. had this weird like son thing with me. So he just was like, okay, you don't want to do anymore? Legally let me out of everything. Which wow. like to this day, I'm like, God, what are the, didn't what he, my life would have been so different. Did he leave all of his money to his chauffeur? Is that the thing too? Is something like that? <laughs> I never heard that. Yeah, story, I think there's something, he, he's a fat, I mean, there's a lot very of fascinating, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of interesting ins and outs that I'm not remembering right now. Alan Meltzer is the yeah. name of you he guys at home. He was very eccentric and him and his wife were sweet. But like, I mean, like when I turned 18, they like flew me and like my girlfriend out to New York and like drove us around in limousines and like we smoked weed and they <laughs> took me to like Blue Man Group <laughs> and shit. <laughs> and I still to this day, it's the fanciest apartment I've ever seen in New York. They live like on Park Avenue, like in this fucking gnarly spot. But yeah. Um, I, I yeah. So he let you out of the Commander Venus yeah. deal. I'm just I'm intrigued that you had 70 songs, but you didn't think you didn't th know if you thought they were any good. But you kept making them. You kept make recording, making and recording these songs. Yeah. I mean, did you just ha need to? Did you feel it? Like yeah. what was the urge when you would sit down and play these? You have something you wanted to get off your chest or? Or you just yeah. hoped you would get better. You just thought if I keep making them, I'll get better. It was just, it was, and I, I actually now I honestly like think, I wish I could get back to this point of like my mindset, but I just it was just purely a lifestyle. I mean, it was like literally what I lived and breathed every day. Right. Was writing songs. Right. For a long time of my life, I don't anymore. Like, I have to, like, put effort in to, like, want to write a song. But, like, when I was a kid, for probably the first, I don't know, 25 years of my life, or well, I guess I started writing songs when I was, like, 10. So, for, like, yeah, I don't know, for probably at least the first, like, 15 of those years of writing songs, it was just, it was just what you did yeah. every day. Did it by yourself, did it with your friends. It was just, yeah, it was the most... um important thing yeah. in existence so when you care that much about something it doesn't right feel like work or right. feel like anything it just feels like oh that's what i do all the yeah. time and i i do wish i could get back to that i don't know i mean a lot of i mean it's not my story's like not unique i feel like with songwriters but like i feel like you know so many things enter into it later on and what I mean, so many questions. Because <laughs> I feel like, you know, in the years that we've known each other, there have been multiple intervals when you've had like, like maybe it was that the touring for an album had finished, and you're you'll say like, I don't know, maybe that's it, maybe I'm not gonna make any more music or something, as if you're like genuinely don't know what's gonna happen. But then 
you know, inevitably you do. So what is the thing, what, you know, do you just feel something shift when it's, you know, now instead of it just being the thing you do every day, do you feel like, oh, it like almost like I have to cough or something, here comes a song? Like, is that when you do pick up a guitar and think like, here I go, I'm going to, I'm going to do this now. Or is it just a matter of forcing yourself? I mean, a, a little, probably a little bit of both. I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I'm. I've been struggling with this like lately, like where I've, I'm just like, sometimes I feel, and you know, this is also probably like, you know, a guy like pushing 40 without really like a family or kids or like some other thing that like would maybe change your priorities or something. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of times I feel like, and this is the first year also, this year, what year are we in? 2018? 18, it's the big one. Like, that I have not, like, I'm barely, I'm, like, not really doing any shows this year. I have, like, no plans, recording. Like, it's, like, the first year I've really, like, taken off in my adult life. So I've actually been struggling with this notion a lot. But I think what it comes down to for me is, like, I don't know. There is... And maybe I'll eventually find some other thing, but that process of like the writing of the song, the you know the making something out of nothing, just that I mean you know that mm-hmm. birth that creative creativity I mean yeah. that's like what it is yeah is like the thing that still is the most fulfilling thing in my life I just find it like harder and harder to like get to it you know Mm -hmm. and so it takes more effort takes more like concerted effort takes more like okay I'm gonna like block out some time to like think about stuff and be away from the sort of rigmarole bullshit of the world distractions and shit yeah and like I'm gonna like focus on this thing that I know is still inside of me I just it's not as accessible, I think. I think when you're young and you're in that mode all the time, there's more of like a direct conduit to that part of your psyche or your yeah. soul or whatever. And you, and you know, maybe it's a little counterintuitive that you would you would feel like I don't know, or I would think maybe having done something so many times for so many years, you become more self assured and like you're like a craftsman and this is like i can do this and i you know you put this brick here and and it's like but like to me it's like gotten less like so you know i'm like i'm more i don't know i don't know i think i actually disagree because i was just thinking as you're saying that about a guy i know who is uh very skilled at solving a rubik's cube like he's got a collection of rubik's cubes um, of all the different kinds with the ones that have a, you know, many more sides, whatever. And he, and he can figure out the algorithms of them and, and solve it very quickly. So with like, not even looking at it. I've seen him do that on YouTube. And really yeah, fast. it's crazy. Uh-huh. And ultimately shouldn't something creative be the opposite of that? Like, right. shouldn't it be where you Still would want it, the better you get at it, the more you need to look at the cube while you're solving it, because mm. the more, uh, perspective you have on like how to do how to what is really good and it's like harder and harder to make something good once you know what good is 
yeah, and to keep, yeah, to kind of keep, keep the mystery in it. I mean, even though it's frustrating, like every time I like finish an album or like finish a batch of like writing a batch of songs, because my stuff does like kind of come in waves. So it's like, I'll like be like, wow, I have like 15 new songs. Like that feels great, you know, but inevitably like right following that is like, write a song again yeah like that was it like the sponge i squeezed the last drop out that's it you know and i get as frustrating as that is it's maybe better that it's like that because it does keep the mystery in there i I, what i'm saying yeah yeah, it would be horrible if it became like so formulaic it was like and now i sit down and Writing right. a new song, you know, like, right. if it is like that little of a struggle, then I imagine I would just be writing terrible songs yeah. or just repeating myself like ad nauseum. But I don't know. All right. Well, that is where uh, that's where we actually took a break to stretch our legs and stuff. So that's I figure where we should wrap up part one of the two part Connor Oberst episode of the LSQ podcast. Part two. Episode 17 is coming out next week. And, you know, there's still plenty more to get into, including Connor's evolving songwriting process following the early years of Bright Eyes, where we just sort of left off. If you're not already subscribed to LSQ, if you do that right now, go ahead and subscribe. You'll get that next episode and all those that follow automatically. Also, I love your feedback. You can always reach me on Twitter, at JennyLSQ, and... Thanks again to Connor for being the best, and thanks to you for listening. 